Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Good morning, everybody. Well, I say good morning. I don't know what time you're listening to this episode, but um, I have on with me today my friend, Dr. Ben, as everyone knows him on the internet. It's Ben Franklin. So um, I wanted to have him on today. There's a lot going on in the medical world, and I think it's always nice to have some long-form perspective from a physician. Uh, We have to be careful. Obviously, this gets pushed out to YouTube and there's censorship issues um, so I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm mindful of that. So if you guys hear us say the word jab, I'm sure that you know what we're referencing, but Ben, tell me a little bit. So I, I want to, let's talk about your move first. So you just recently moved to Tennessee and talk to me a little bit about your decision to do that. Like what made you decide to go from where you were to where you are now? And are, are you happy with that decision? Like, are you liking Tennessee, or, or talk to me a little bit about that first. You know, that was a that was a long time coming type deal. Um, I I grew up um, in the greater New York City area, um, and New York City New York City's my blood. New York City is the you know I'm a I guess third generation New Yorker, um, and anything and everything I have now was provided by the city of New York in the form of my father, my grandfather, um, and many, many, many other uh, uh, family members, uncles, godfathers, uh, aunts, cousins, etc., being members of the New York City Police Department. So, you know, essentially, my family is, we were, I was on the third generation of, in my own way, in my own form, serving the city of New York um, as uh, somebody who, you know, served and, uh, helped the public. And it was kind of a calling for that many generations. And, um, it was probably in my teens. And I spent a lot of time in my childhood, uh, and teens and twenties, uh, months at a time in upstate New York, deep in the backwoods too. So I was exposed to both forms of living the real deep, on your own, dark territory, backwoods, no uh, no phone, no cell service, no internet. Um, and then the city. And um, I spent some time also living in, uh, in the Caribbean in what's considered a third world country. I spent two years uh, living there. Uh, and I spent a couple of months living in Texas and four years living in Jersey City. So I've been, I've seen all the different sides of the spectrum. And I'd also been shooting since I was nine. Um, and, you know, my family was a very, very strong libertarian lean before that was even kind of known as a thing. Um, you know, my father was a very, very, very intelligent guy. Um, since I was young, I'd say, um, yeah, don't trust the government. <laughs> <laughs> Like, Are we, we brother and sister? Like I, <laughs> but that was just his thing. Is like you know we we worked for the government for a long time. We know what the government does. Don't trust the government. Right. Sure. 
Um, and as things kind of progressed over the years, New York City got nicer and cleaner and safer. Um, you know, there was a really good outlook for it, but at the same time, you know, we all noticed the number of freedoms, the ability to do certain things was getting restricted more and more and more. And the, and the diversity of ideas was disappearing. Um, it used to be that there was a very strong, um, conservative Republican element in any borough you went, even in Manhattan. In Manhattan, it was always small, it was always a minority, but it was still strong enough that its presence was felt and known and it was felt in public policy. You could never go too far because there were a certain number of people who would, who would stop that, you know, would say no. And we have enough money and enough power within the community to say we don't want this. And so there was a, there was a check and balance and it was, it was working and there was a good ecosystem in that sense. And that evaporated over the past, we say decade. Um, and as we watched that, you know, I kept saying, you know, at some point, um, I'm going to get out of here. At some point, I'm going to make the move. I'm going to um, go somewhere else. Uh, Texas was always high on the list. And Tennessee hadn't really made it on the list until probably the last two years. Um, and before there was a huge rush here, uh, I had come, I had checked out Tennessee and the Nashville area. Um, I was really impressed. Uh, and also Kentucky. And I stayed a little bit in Kentucky for a bit too. And so. Dang it. Coming no, I'm just off, kidding. <laughs> you would have been up here with me and Javi. I know. I know. I, so originally there, you know, there, I, there was an idea for me to um, take, try to find a job in Kentucky because uh, my fiance's um, sister uh, is active military and was stationed at Fort Knox. And okay. so we were, we were kind of like, if we can get around there, that'd be great. We could visit, we, you know, it could be family. It'd be good. Sure. Mm, jobs, the jobs that came up though, were not great. Uh, and the right. one in Tennessee just happened to be really well suited. So when I saw it come up and I was just like, I have to go, I have to get an interview. So I, I, t- I applied to this one. I applied to two in Texas. I applied to uh, one in Florida, one in uh, Arizona. And this one won hands down and they really wanted me. So I said, um, I said, this is the time, you know, if I wait any longer, I'm not gonna be able to do it. If I start to establish my life and my career in the Northeast, it's really hard to leave once you kind of started establishing your connection somewhere. Well, especially Um, in your, your career field, like you, once you start building, which I, I mean, I guess for your specific in like part of your career, not necessarily, but I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. It's hard. Even I think it's hard in any industry really. Like once you start establishing yourself, cause I, I mean, I want to move, right. Even though I, I do live in a, a good state, there are better States, right? Like there are other better opportunities in different places. And so, um, but my kid is in school now. She does competitive gymnastics. Like she has her coaches, she has her gym. So the idea of like picking up and moving is not very feasible anymore for us. So I, I, you know, and our family's here and stuff like that. So I, I can completely empathize with not wanting to establish yourself before you go ahead and move. And and that was actually more it than it was the career because I know, you know, 
It's that, it's that stupid, damn, I can't remember if it's the Beatles or if it was John Lennon specifically, uh, quote, but you know, life is what happened what happens while you're making plans. And that's exactly what winds up happening. You make right. these plans and then life happens. And then before you know it, your roots are down and to uproot them, it's super difficult. And, and I hear that conversation happening all the time right now, because there's so many people who are like-minded and they're in these more Northern states. And it's really hard for them, you know, to say, okay, well, I don't like it here. I don't want my family here, but, um, you know, I can't just move. I can't just take my take my whole family and go to Texas. It's just not feasible. The kids are in school. Uh, we've got friends. We've got responsibilities. We've got other family here, so on. And this this was timed very perfectly. You know, right after the pandemic. Um, you know, admittedly, you know, residency and fellowship, especially in the surgical field, doesn't lend itself well to maintaining personal relationships um, just because your time is totally constrained. And so I had amazing friends from childhood that we kept in touch. We, we were inseparable most of our lives, but the past couple of years they started to drift. And then during the pandemic, you know, we had a couple of zoom calls because everybody was locked down and, and we would talk and they would be shocked by the things coming out of my mouth. Cause they'd be like, yeah, but you're in an ICU. There's like, tons of people dying around you. And I'd say, yeah, there are, but I'm still saying X, Y, or Z is wrong. Not, and I'm not saying that as a clinician, I'm saying that as somebody who understands history and politics and knows where this leads and it's potentially more dangerous than what I'm seeing. Um, And the benefit is potentially a zero sum game, looking at some of the data from places that had less restrictions and, and less lockdowns. So, you know, and that, that soured a lot of my friends and, you know, I stopped getting phone calls when I was leaving. Everybody knew I was leaving for good. I get one phone call, say goodbye, go get a beer, nothing. So at that point, like a lot of my old roots were gone. And, and so I was like, this is the time I'm not going to get another shot here. Something else is going to happen. I'm going to want to stay. It's going to be harder to leave this is it. We got to go. And so we did. And I have no regrets so far. I love it here. Um, it's the cost of living's better. Taxes are better. I get to keep more of my money. Um, the people are amazingly nice, you know, even from a patient, um, population perspective, like, you know, my, in New York city, you know, you help patients save their life or you treat their, their ailment, you take away their pain. They're more likely to spit on you or punch you, um, especially, well, very specifically in my field, than shake your hand. And here they, they're just, they're just so thankful that there's somebody here to help them. And I'm that, like, it was a huge, uh, there's like a real difference for me. I, I was like, whoa, because I, I keep, I keep a certain amount of distance in, in, in a patient's room because I keep stay at a striking distance and yeah, sure. I'm just used to that safety here. People are like getting up and hugging here. you and yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> and, um, okay. So and, real yeah. fast, just for the audience. And I, I take for granted that everybody that listens knows the same people that I'm talking to. So um, will you share specifically what type of medicine you practice? So I, 
I've completed a general surgery residency, which is essentially um, I can perform uh, most types of surgery inside of the abdomen and a good number of surgeries inside of your chest minus uh, very complex cardiac procedures and also the head, neck, face, and pretty much anywhere on the body. Um, so it's, that's called general surgery. And I completed a five-year residency in that at a level one trauma center in uh, New York City. And then I completed a two-year fellowship that focuses on uh, trauma surgery, emergency general surgery, and uh, surgical critical care. So I am also a board-eligible uh, ICU intensivist. I am uh, capable of running any type of ICU from medical ICU, cardiac ICU, and specifically trauma and surgical ICU. Um, and my focus is on trauma surgery and emergency general surgery. So the sickest patients in the surgical field. Uh, I will be completing my boards in the next eight months, and then I will be board certified. Um, and right now I'm currently practicing in uh, Tennessee as uh, someone who's completed their training and uh, as a full-fledged attending. It's kind of exciting like to hear what you guys go through from a, you know, clinicals and residencies and, and all of that stuff, like to have perspective of how long you've had to put in the work and effort to actually be a, a practicing um, physician and then to go on and get board certified. That's pretty it's commendable. It's admirable because a lot of that you're, you're low man on the totem pole. So I know it's not easy. Um, talk to me a little bit really fast before we get into like the, all the heavy stuff, like the, the stuff, talk to me a little bit about your, um, two years outside of the country. What specifically were you doing out there? Or was that, was so that just was gonna... for fun or did you do that for, for medicine? So I did that for medicine. So when I, um, when I was an undergrad, um, I had gotten a full, uh, scholar academic scholarship to undergrad, but, uh, that didn't cover room and board. So for rent and to make ends meet, I was working full time while in undergrad. Um, and then on top of it at the same time, I was remotely from afar still running a house because, uh, my dad worked eight days a week, 26 hours a day. Um, and my mother, when I was much younger, had contracted uh, MS. And although she had been doing better in those years, and today she's actually almost almost completely normal. Um, so there were some real advances in the medicine for that. Um, from the age of like 15, I was running the household. I was paying the bills. I was balancing the checkbook. I was making sure my sister was getting to school. There was food in the house, so on. And I still had a little sister who was living at home. So I was working full time. I was running a house from another state and I was uh, going to school. So that made it extremely difficult to study for the medical school entrance exam, the MCATs, which are very arbitrary. Um, they're necessary. I don't think they should be abolished or anything like that, but it's very, very difficult. And I was one point below where I needed to be to make it into an American allopathic medical school or even a DO school. Um, cause I didn't end up the other thing being, I didn't have a lot of research papers published. I had written two papers. Only one of them got published. One of them had been held back. Um, 
but I got an offer to go to St. George's Medical School in Grenada. Now, when you talk about offshore medical schools and Caribbean medical schools, that one's pro- that one is the best one out of all of them. And um, you people would be shocked how many doctors um, in the United States are graduates of uh, Caribbean it's medical schools, schools simply because. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's so, so many of them. You'd be so surprised. But they were like, hey, you can wait a year and retake it. And I was thinking about, you know, since I graduated school, I could spend the year just working full time. And then I would have all that time that I was spending in class to study for the MCAT and just knock it out. They were like, you could do that or you come here in six months. We have a class in January and we're, you know, we're accepting and they accepted me based on all of the stuff that I had. And so I, I was impatient and I didn't want to wait. Um, <laughs> Shocker. You know, right. You know all that I know about you, I can't imagine that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, that's mind blowing. Um, <laughs> but like, I thought about it and I was like, uh, yeah, that's fine. And so I worked for six months. I, I had a couple different jobs, uh, including a little bit of consulting and then, um, and I went and I spent two years there. Um, and career wise, I don't know if I would have been in any different of a spot than I am. Uh, training wise, it was, you know, it, it was, it was more brutal. Their tactics are unpleasant. You are not comfortable. Um, American medical school, 99% of people who get in will graduate. They hold your hand all the way through in Caribbean medical school. It's about uh, 60 that are accepted will graduate. And that's, that's like, that's conservative number. Um, So what makes them so, I guess maybe, can you explain a little bit just to elaborate on that? What do you mean by like, why would, why would they be more strict or what are some things that they do a little bit differently that American schools don't? So they don't hold your hand. If you're not doing well, tough shit. Um, You know, I, I compared our, um, our dean to basically like uh, somebody in you know, a capo and like the mafia is fuck you, pay me. Um, and what that means is they accept. So let's say there's a class of like their classes are much larger, first of all. So normal American allopathic medical school class size, probably like 100, maybe 200, really, really high end there. Right. Their class size was about 500. And it's grown since I've been there for sure. Um, but this, every medical school has to pay a hospital in the States or multiple hospitals in the States, um, money to take their medical students for the last two years. Medical school is two years of classroom, two years as a medical student in a hospital. So at second two years, you have to pay hospitals a very large amount of money per student to take, um, to take a student for two years. Um, so they accept 500, let's say, they only purchase 300 spots, let's say. And that, uh, these, are, these are just example just numbers. Just arbitrary uh, numbers. Uh, they're yeah, actual gotcha. numbers, yeah. They're, but that's the idea. So they know that they're going to lose a certain amount of students. And if by the time they're coming up on the end of that second year, they haven't, they tell the professors, turn up the heat. And they make the exams extremely difficult. Um, and the other reason for that is because they only want the absolute best students making it out because everything about picking one of these schools is about their, um, step one, step two pass rate. 
step step is three steps to get your medical license in the United States. Step one, step two, uh, A and B, I forget the actual lettering form, and then step three. Um, so when you get out, they want their step one pass rate. And now I think it's step two because they just made step one pass fail, but it didn't used to be. Step one was the test that residencies looked at to say how smart you were and if they were going to accept you. And if you didn't pass it, it was a big deal. So they wanted their step one pass rate to be in the 90s so that they could say to people who were looking to spend their money, come on in. And all those people who didn't make it through and made it to the second year and just didn't pass that class, they got sent home with half of the loans on them. So they... So that was free money for the school. They didn't have to pay for that spot that you were going to go to. They just got your loan money and that was pure profit. So it was the model. Hmm. That's crazy. I mean, it's cool. And it's even better that you made it through. Um, Okay. So let's fast forward. So you're practicing medicine now. You've been doing it for quite a while, but um, we have a, what I would say is an endemic illness now, but at the time pandemic started in what November of 2019, declaratively March of 2020, right? Yeah, about there, yeah. So they say 15 days to flatten the curve in the beginning. And the intention with that was to absorb the load that was coming into emergency rooms and critical care units. And they needed people to kind of hold back a little bit so that, that that would be possible. Right. So I think, I don't think anybody in the country at that time was not okay with giving up 15 days, right? Like two weeks, no big deal. We're now, I mean, we're, we're approaching at this point, almost two years into this whole process, right? Two years. So, the curve, yeah. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about, your experience as a surgeon, and like I want to be, I, I'm always transparent. You know this from from our interactions. I I am not diminishing that this is a virus. I'm not diminishing that that it has killed people. Like I'm not I'm not saying that. But I'm curious if now, in hindsight, as we look back, is the governmental response matching or mirroring the virus itself and how that was handled. Does that make sense? Does the question make sense? No, it does. No, no, it does. Absolutely. Um, By the way, I just turned up the level on my mic because uh, I wasn't sure if I was coming through loud enough. So I just turned up a little bit. No, I'm glad you did because now I see you actually registering on my thing a lot better. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was looking at. Um, So... Full disclosure before I get into this is I'm not an infectious disease specialist, although I do have um, some research time in, in that field and some consulting time in the field of biological, chemical, and nuclear agent preparation and disaster preparedness. Um, but I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have a master's in public health either. Um, however, with a good working knowledge of microbiology, virology, and um, clinical experience, specifically in the ICU. So at the beginning of the pandemic in starting uh, late April, going into early to mid-May, 
was when the ICUs where I was uh, were getting pretty filled up. And I, I was in a major, major center. And we had already, like, just to begin with, um, five, let me think, medical ICU, CCU, cardiothoracic ICU, neurosurgical ICU, surgical ICU. Um, so at least five ICUs in the hospital. And we were still opening up um, new ICUs in areas that were not technically ICUs. And the medical ICU um, attendings recruited the surgical ICU attendings to take over COVID ICUs because they were not only run ragged, but they were also, some of them had gotten it and were knocked out. Right. Um, so, and I was at the end of my first year of fellowship. So the first year of fellowship is all ICU. So I had pretty much finished my ICU training and was working as an ICU attending at that point as a fellow. So I would bill as an attending. I was left independently to run and to run the surgical ICU. And I would just call my attending, like if they, I ran something super weird and I was like, I want to do this. Like, what do you think? Um, and then we got me and my co we got thrown into it. And, you know, this, this, in the beginning, this virus was, you know, scary. It was scary shit. We, nobody had any information on it. Nobody knew what we were dealing with. Nobody knew what the fatality, case fatality rate was going to wind up being. Um, nobody knew what the confounding factors, uh, the comorbidities that mattered and nobody knew how to treat it. Um, and we had very little information as to how it was spreading. Everybody assumed that it was droplet, but you know, to this day, I maintain that it really was, um, an airborne pathogen. Now there, there are strict definitions as to what the difference between droplet and airborne is. Um, argue it's arguable that it would meet the definite, the strict definition for airborne fine. But when it was aerosolized and was able to spread, um, very easily on air currents over a large space. And there were some really good European studies um, with computer modeling uh, of the actual spread of just one cough or one sneeze right. in, in, in some type of well-circulated area. Yeah. Yeah. There were some really good studies. So like I was convinced at that point, um, you know, this was, we were dealing with something airborne. Um, and you know, we had a, I mean, we had a lot of fatality, but if I, when I walk around the ICU and, and as I think back on it, um, the number of young, healthy people that didn't have any comorbidities, there were, there were a few, but they weren't, they were not the norm. There was a very small number. It was people who had comorbidities, people who, um, were either older or uh, overweight or had respiratory illnesses, cardiac illnesses that um, made them very susceptible to this and other things. Um, one thing I noticed was there were some of the young people that were there, they were, um, they had different mild cardiac issues, um, respiratory issues, but they also were um, substance abusers and they had liver issues or um, other, uh, illnesses that definitely in hindsight made them very susceptible. So when you, when I look at that in hindsight and I think about, you know, two weeks to, to flatten the curve. Okay. Makes sense. Got you. Curve's not flattening. Everybody, 
everything is at a standstill and it's still not flattening. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. At what point do you say, well, this measure is not effective. And you see the numbers go down, sure. But the numbers also were going down in areas where they weren't heavily locking down. Or if they weren't, they only lagged behind by a week. And this very clearly has a cyclical, let me just mute that, a cyclical seasonal current to it. Um, and there's a lot of factors that go into that. How many people are going out? How many people are congregating? How many people? And and what is what is the weather? What are the air currents like? Stuff like that. Right. Um, but you're never going to stop people from seeing each other. Humans are social creatures. So even though there were lockdowns, people were going to each other's houses. Right. And it was spreading that way, especially in highly densely populated areas like New York City, Los Angeles, you know, big cities. You're on top of each other. Somebody's, somebody's relative visits them in the apartment next to you, and then you bump into each other in the hallway – that's it. And then you spread it to wherever you're going. It's not, these lockdowns were not, were not working. They were effective in the beginning, I guess, to try to blunt the response uh, as far as the hospitals were concerned. Cause we were overwhelmed. Like people say the hospitals were not overwhelmed. We were at least in the New York city area, North Jersey, Connecticut, like our ICUs were packed to the brim. We were putting people in places that didn't even exist. Like there was hospital overload at the beginning. Now, right. fast forward, that lasted through July, August, and then everything tapered off. But um, you know, ICUs weren't filling up. Um, and the restrictions were still pretty stringent. And they, they've, they let up. But um, I don't see a, a lot of the measures as necessary. Um, mm-hmm. You know as we went into August of last year and they were continuing. And, and then you look at the fact that at least this is my opinion and I may be wrong. And this is not based in any good data, but one of the things I I think happened in a lot of places that you see the numbers are way down now. um, And even over the past couple of months when they were spiking in other places, there was a certain population that was going to get very sick from this. Right. And once the virus has torn through that population and burned itself out in that population, there's only so many people you can, you know, that have these comorbidities that have the susceptibility that are going to get killed from this. And then everybody else is just going to get sick. It may have burnt itself out. Those populations may, may have either died or they got it, survived and now have antibody immunity. Um, so I really have a strong suspicion that that happened in a lot of the hardest hit areas in the beginning and is starting to happen now in the less in the areas that weren't as hard hit then and now are seeing enormous numbers that are starting to wane. Um, and you factor into that, and this is a whole other conversation, but you know if the, you know the vaccine does the vaccine does blunt um, the body's response to the virus and the virus isn't what hurts you. It's the body's response. The, the COVID creates an enormous inflammatory response in the body. And that's what hurts everything. Right. And it's very different from a lot of stuff. It's very akin to the cytokine storm you see in Ebola. Um, and there's some, 
debate on whether it's really a cytokine storm or storm or what we call Brady kind uh, Brady Kynan storm. And there's some debate in the medical community on which one is really the worst one, and it is. But in any event, the idea being, um, it blunts that response because your body's already got some inflammatory response and kind of already knows what it is and doesn't go overboard for very very layman's terms. So for at eighty percent vaccinated uh, in the country, and you have to assume that out of that twenty percent that's not, there's a big portion of them that's had it and has antibody immunity. Um, that's that's as good as you're going to get. Like Man. there is nothing. There's no better you, that you can do. The, the the campaign against smallpox wasn't that good. And we eradicated that off the face of the earth. So, you know, I don't know, you know, this. So when I see that I, and I see the government's response still currently, I know that this is, this is politicized. This is pure politics. This is, there's nothing else. Um, there's nothing else to it. They're not, they don't care. It's not about saving lives at this point. Um, it's about preserving a narrative and preserving a tool to be used for government overreach and greater uh, federal control. So, <clears throat> so let's talk about that government overreach, right? Like, first of all, that makes us domestic extremists. If you think that the government is overreaching, just FYI. Um but <laughs> well, um, so I like, okay, you are now seeing like back whenever they started the whole slow, the spread thing and they were shutting down private businesses. Um, Attila's gym is always like the one that firmly comes to mind, which is the, it, you, you're probably familiar with that. The dude in Jersey who, um, he was shut down. He continued to open. And I think he never had a single case, like of all the times he had the gym open. So, and his argument was really great. It was like, okay, well, if obesity is one of the largest comorbidities and one of the biggest issues with this, why shouldn't we be working to keep more people getting healthy, right? Or losing weight or whatever. And um, so, sorry, that was just a wild tangent. But see, so you had government shutting down businesses I never saw fast food restaurants get shut down. I never saw big box companies get shut down. I only saw small mom and pop shops being manhandled by health departments. And so now moving forward, now you're seeing the government say, okay, I know we shut a lot of these companies down. Now I want you to force people within your organization to get vaccinated. And it's really interesting to me because we've removed all liability, right? Like we've told the manufacturers of these medications that they are not to be held legally liable for any repercussions of having this. But but now you're telling me I absolutely have to get it. And you brought up a point um, a couple of days ago, maybe three days ago, um, you had shared the article from the Project Veritas video. And the article has the email correspondence back and forth um, with some high level officials within Pfizer, where it it indicates that at some point in time in the process of development, 
um, fetal cell lines were utilized in the manufacture of this vaccination from Pfizer. And so to me, that provides a religious exemption for people who do have, you know, the belief that you cannot, I mean, last night we had a Jehovah's witness that was talking about blood and the fact that, you know, they sign DNRs and you can't do blood transfusions for them because once the blood, you know, all that stuff, you're a doctor. So you're aware of that kind of stuff. But, um, having what could be either aborted or miscarried fetal cells utilized in the manufacture of something that you're going to inject in your body, I feel like there is some exemption possibility there, but you have the government saying, nope, that's not a valid excuse. Nope, we don't want to talk about the fact that that we used that in the process of making this. We want you to hush up about that. So talk to me a little bit about being a physician and the relationship between you and I right? If you're going to advise me, you're going to give me the ability to have informed consent, right? Like I, I am educated about this and I am deciding that between you and I, this is the best course of action for me. That conversation is being removed and the government is interjecting themselves in between you and I now. And the government is saying, nope, you no longer get to do your job as her doctor. And I am saying she must do this of not of her own free will, but because I'm telling her she has to. Like, where do you stand on that and how do you feel about that? So for a long time in medicine, there was, you know, up until I would say maybe the past two or three decades, um, and we started moving away from it, uh, this concept of paternalism. Um, Paternalism, do as I say, not as I do. And so you went to your doctor and uh, you trusted your doctor uh, implicitly. And you had a good relationship with your doctor and you knew that your doctor went to school, learned things that you didn't and has a complex understanding of stuff that you don't. And when they tell you, Hey, you need this surgery. You need to be taking this medication. You need to stop eating this. You need to get your ass on a treadmill. You did it because of course you went and did your research, but because you knew your doctor had your best interest in mind. He wasn't getting paid uh, to make you sick. He was getting paid to get you well. And the relationship that you had between the two of you was as a team for your betterment. And when something went wrong, you trusted implicitly that your doctor would be there and would make good decisions and you would go along with those decisions. Like if I'm so sick that I, you know, I have a fever of 105, I'm delirious. My doctor's going to be there and he's going to take care of me. And I might not know what's going on, but I know that he's going to take care of me. Right. That relationship changed. Um, and for the better, to some extent, informed consent is a very good thing. I believe in informed consent and I do believe in patient autonomy. Um, and I look at it, uh, one of the things that strikes me is uh, just kind of a parallel. The U.S. military right now is saying you have to get the vaccine 
Um, so what you're telling me if I'm if I'm GI Joe infantry guy, I signed a piece of paper and said I'm totally cool with you putting me into situations where there are bullets, mortars, RPGs, and various other very dangerous things flying at me that are highly likely to end my life in a violent and painful way. But I'm not allowed to make the decision to take the risk on this virus where I have a 99.9 something percent chance of survival. Um, but something's off. And so with, from my perspective as a physician, I, 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 I think the vaccine's safe. I got the vaccine. Um, I encourage my patients to get the vaccine, but I give them all the facts. I tell them what the stats are. I tell them what their risk is. And I say, it's a good idea to get it. I had COVID. I had a very severe form of COVID. I was out of work for a month and I'm a young, healthy guy that was running and in the gym and, and, you know, knocked me out. But I have my own quote unquote comorbidities in the sense that I was sleep deprived, exhausted. My body was depleted uh, at that point. And that, you know, that was not a good way to go into it. But and I tell people, and I tell them my experience with it. And then I say, but it's your decision. I don't, I'm not telling you if you don't get this, you're going to die. I'm not telling you if you don't get this, you are selfish. And I'm not telling you if you don't get this, you're hurting your neighbor because the odds are your neighbor, if they're vaccinated, it shouldn't matter if you are. Now we've learned that that's not necessarily the case as these vaccines effectiveness have been waning and we're now being told that you can still be a very effective vector even if you are vaccinated. So this vaccination does not confer immunity. It simply blunts the effects of the virus and that's about it. That's what they're, you know, that's that's the company line now. So even even I think that's even more of an argument to say how necessary is this to protect your neighbor if you're still contracting it and you're still shedding it and you're still a vector and in some senses in some sense and some are arguing this you might be a more dangerous vector because if you're less likely to feel any symptoms when you're infected and shedding you're more likely to go into public places whereas if I get a fever because I was unvaccinated and I got it I'm like, well, shit, I got a fever. I might have this shit. I'm going to stay the fuck home. Right. So that argument of you're selfish if you don't get it, that's that argument's shot now. Um, and it's really for your personal benefit alone. That's it. And, right. and if you want to talk on a societal scale, oh, no, if I get so sick that I can't work my job and I have an essential job, yes, you're depriving the, the, the public of that, whatever that essential job may be, whether it's nursing staff or um, cops or firefighters, but still, you know, it's, it's not, I don't believe that the government has or should have the ability to force the issue with something that has the survival rate that this does. Now, then people go, well, we, we mandate other vaccines in the workplace and in school. Yeah, but those are for things that are patently deadly. Right. Um, and, you know, they, they 
eat through populations, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, those kill kids. And, you know, well, and there's long term this- study and research on those vaccinations. Like, I'm not anti vax. Both of my kids are fully vaccinated right now. But those those vaccines have been in place for generations. I had the same vaccines when I was a kid, right? So I, well, not the chicken pox one, but the, the, I, there is long-term data and long-term research to support that. Whereas with this, we're literally talking a year old. We, we don't have long-term data for this stuff. And in fact, I want to, I don't know if you've seen this, so I, I may be throwing something at you that you're unaware of, but, um, in the in this past week, and I just the only reason I know is because I did it for the space last night. Johnson and Johnson has had to um, terminate their program in Europe, and um, Business Insider put an article out yesterday, so almost exactly twenty four hours ago. The Pfizer um, COVID nineteen immunity protection diminishes after two months and can reach as low as twenty percent efficacy after four months, according to the studies. So I hadn't heard about that one, but that one, those numbers, uh, they don't have. I'm gonna. I would have to look at it, but I'm willing to bet that they don't have. Uh, they don't have a data set large enough to really uh, accurately predict the numbers. Although it's definitely lower than it should be. Um, right, but. With the MMR, I don't even make the argument about them having long-term studies simply because when they first implemented them as a public health need, I forget how much, how many years they'd been around for at that point. And it was longer than this has been. Um, but, you know, we're talking, you know, you're talking much further back decades and decades ago, the data collection and examination of these things was less stringent and people were way more accepting. And so, I don't even make that argument because, you know, at that, if you go back there, I forget, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure I really have to look at it, but I'm sure that one of the vaccines that we all take while we have long-term studies now, when they were first implemented as a public need and requirement, I'm willing to bet that there were a few that didn't have great, great data sets, data sets and studies. And so rather than get caught in that trap, I just more, I, I would, I focus on the argument of, those things were deadly and life changing, and they had a high probability of being that. Um, you know, for instance, the you know something that we don't, and not a lot of people are talking about. You know, in the pediatric population, I think as of now, or was as of a few weeks ago, um, RSV, respiratory succincteal virus, has killed more kids in this country than COVID. Yes nobody's and nobody nobody's freaking out and keeping kid keeping kids out of school and masking them for RSV. No. And they never did. <laughs> it's like it's like you can die of one thing but you're like it's it's worse if you die from another thing. Like it's it's so weird to me the way that this is being treated. It's still being treated as if we know nothing about it. Does that make sense? Like it's um like RS, like that, the prospect of, so I have a two-year-old, right? The prospect of Finnegan getting RSV scares the living fuck out of me because he has had to have breathing treatments. He's had asthma. He's unfortunately, sus- he's my kid, right? So I, the idea of him getting that scares me more than him getting COVID. 
No, and that's and that like you know so whenever the argument is with you know parents in regards to well we need to mask the kids and I want the vaccination for my for my five five month old and blah 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 <laughs> I'm just like look there's only so much risk mitigation you can have and I, and I'm not a parent yet so I I understand that I have a component missing um, right. from my risk calculation there um, but you know. My larger concern is, and I, I don't think the long, I honestly don't think the long-term studies are going to wind up showing um, an enormous danger from these vaccines. I, I, I personally don't, and I could be wrong, but thinking about it, if I had a kid, do I, how many things am I willing to roll the dice on? Um, and looking at what happens when kids get this virus um, and what the effects on them are, unless, you know, unless your kid has a congenital heart problem, congenital lung problem, severe asthma, um, uh, an, immuno an immunological disorder, um, you know, something like that. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a whole other risk calculation and you can make, and you make that decision, um, if it becomes available for, for certain age groups, but for Johnny down the street, that's perfectly healthy and running around outside. Um, you know, should that parent be forced now to roll the dice? I don't think so. Yeah. And and the harm reduction. And when you want to talk about harm reduction, the effects that lockdowns and masking <laughs> and the fear that this that has been created by this and the destruction of childhood socialization. Um we are going to be seeing long, long lasting effects and they are going to be, they're going to be severe. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, and we're going to, I, I think, and I'm not a pediatrician. There is a certain Twitter pediatrician in the conservative Twitter sphere who may have a better uh, perspective on this than I. Yeah. Um, my I'll have to reach out to him too. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, I think there's a strong possibility that we may find later on in long-term studies that the, the number of children's lives saved or kept from severe disease with long lasting effect versus the number of kids who wind up having severe psychological and socialization issues, plus factoring in the number of pediatric and teenage suicides that we had that were a well increased number during the lockdowns and even currently up to now. Um, I, I, I think that the effects of all of that may wind up being worse when all of the math is done. Yeah, I think, um, so my son is too, I just shared that with you, but, um, during the, the pandemic, it has been a really, difficult thing for him. And I didn't even think about it until I started noticing, but his ability to understand and trigger social cues with facial expressions, he, he can with me and, and my daughter and my husband, he has a really hard time in public, like, because people have masks on their face. This is former, like now in Indiana, we don't have that anymore, but I started noticing like women would talk to him in the, in target, right? Like a fucking basic white bitch, right? Going through target with my kids. 
And um, I'm going down the aisle and women would be like, oh, look how cute you are. And like the language would be there, but because he couldn't see their face, he would just stare at them. Like there would be no, he wouldn't understand that the words coming out of their mouth is supposed to elicit a response, a smile or some sort of engagement from him. And because that's how his daycare was too. Like I I started noticing his inability to pick up on social cues. Um, And it has created delays for him. Like whenever he gets in trouble, he doesn't understand like, and maybe it's because he's a boy too, but he doesn't, (laughs) he doesn't understand like, this doesn't, this face doesn't mean something good. It means that you're doing something bad. And so that's one element. And then the second thing is my daughter is probably going to have to have another eye surgery because she has gotten in the habit when she wears her mask. And we have tried putting like the little bubble thing in there to keep it pushed away from her face. We've tried everything. And because she's gotten so used to when she has that mask on her glasses fog up. So she pushes her glasses up on top of her head because her eye issue has nothing to do with her ability to see. She can see fine. Her issue is that her muscle strength, the glasses help pull her eye in so that she can create the muscle strength necessary to be able to keep her eyes focused in the right direction. And I think she's going to have to have surgery again because she's gone almost a year now constantly putting her glasses on top of her head and creating issues with her eye muscles. So, you know, is me having to put her through that surgery again, which was fucking brutal the first time we did it, worth her having to wear masks when she's not sick? Like she's she's worn a mask for over a year now being treated as if she's a sick individual, but there's nothing wrong with her. And uh, man, it's really fucking hard as a parent. I'm not going to lie. Like I know you're a physician and you have to look at it from that perspective, but, but we're conditioning children to, to act and think that they're sick when they are not. And, but even as a physician, that, that calculus comes into account for me. And I I think about it a lot. You know, the adult population is one thing when it comes to the pediatric population, how much harm reduction are we truly accomplishing here versus how much harm we're doing? And that's, you know, what you're saying is one great example of, you know, these things that nobody thinks about. Um, And actually, before I go on, uh, have you tried the masks that have a, a special styro, a special foam layer on top called Fog Shield? No, I haven't even heard so, of this. So, so in the operating room, that is a very common problem. You're because we all wear eye protection, and some of the masks have a plastic eye protection attached to it that's disposable, and it constantly fogs up. But so they made masks that have this special um, soft foam on the inside of the top line of it. So it absorbs the moisture before it comes out. Mm -hmm. And so it stops, it stops all of our stuff from fogging up. If you, uh, if you haven't, uh, when we're done, I'll bring up a, I'll bring up a site and look for them and I'll send you the links, but that's what we use in the operating room to keep our glasses from fogging. Cause you either got that or sometimes I have to wear loops, which are glasses that have little, 
little magnifiers um, sticking out of the bottom. And like, if you don't have that thing or you don't use like, uh, sometimes I use silk tape or um, this very, very soft foam tape um, that I just tape over, like right under the eyes. If I don't do that, they fog up immediately. And I'm like, ah, shit, screw this tape. Right. Uh, take this off. I, I can't see. <laughs> so, so if that's, if that's an issue, um, I, we'll, we'll talk about it upstream, but I highly recommend it. It might, it might be the thing. Uh, anyway, um, no. And like, so all of this comes down to harm reduction. What are we, you know, how, what risks are we mitigating and how much harm is done if you take the brakes off and how much harm is done with the brakes on and you have to weigh them. It's a scale. It's not, and this isn't a black and white, like linear conversation. This is, there's a lot of nuance here, but the media and the government has created this picture of all or nothing. There's no nuance. I don't give a shit what your problems are. This is, you know, this is for the overall public. Um, and I don't, and nobody's really looking at what are the costs to us of some of these extreme measures? Um, and, and, you know, we, like you were mentioning the gym that was closed. And by the way, every time I think of that guy, I just think of that one scene from the Wolf of Wall Street where he's got the microphone and he starts screaming, I ain't, I ain't leaving. <laughs> like, I, I just... I just think of this big jacked dude in the middle of his gym, just screaming that at the top of his lungs. Um, right. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, and, and he made a good point, although there is a lot to be discussed about, you know, uh, how much higher risk are you of spreading it at the gym and blah, blah, blah. Right, but right. No, I got aside it. from that argument, um, yeah, I mean, you're also at high risk of spreading it at Walmart. Yeah. Um, and what was the difference between Walmart and the corner bodega? Right. In some places, the corner bodega had to close. What? How does that make sense? Hold on. Just sure. pump those brakes for a second. I need, I need, I need, I need hard scientific data points. Prove to me that that guy's store and Walmart are not the same risk. Correct. Show it to me. You didn't. You didn't care. But, and we made exceptions also, and you had to make this exception, and I totally understand it. However, yeah, we made exceptions for liquor stores. Now, why did we do that? Because a lot of people bring that up. The last thing you because wanted in the middle of a pandemic. And if you had a yeah. detoxing, yeah, it would have been terrible. Oh, no. You had a whole emergency room situation filled with tons of people going through DTs. Yeah, no. So you didn't want that. But at the same time, you're mitigating that risk, but you weighed that. You weighed the risk, one versus the other, and you said, keep it open. Right. That had to be done with a lot of other stuff, and it wasn't. Um, so, you know, taking this back to the 10,000-foot view, I firmly, firmly uh, believe that this is all about power and a power grab um, and a huge shift in our uh, – in in our society and in the way our government affects economics. Um, it was the largest transfer of wealth in history. A lot of people been saying that over and over again for over a year now. It was the largest transfer of wealth in history from the lower and middle class to the upper class. N nobody has profited like this 
ever in the history of the United States uh, than people like Amazon and Google and Walmart, like the politicians, the politicians. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, what I don't understand is how people on the opposite side of this don't look at that and at the very least scratch their head and go, huh, that's interesting. Well, because hmm. they don't, they see it as an opportunity for them to grab power as well. It's really interesting and we could get into a huge tangent on this, but, uh, and maybe, maybe I will at some point maybe write about this. I'm not sure, but people always talk about the pendulum swinging, right? Like it it goes and it's going to swing harder in the other direction. And right now you have people who are identifying with the power, right? Like you have people that, and I, I would have never thought that the democratic party would become the party of loving the government and not only loving them, but essentially begging them to assert their authority over others. And you, this whole, it's almost like, you know, the concept of like the Karen, right? Like it's like this entire half of the, the world at this point, but the country has become one big Karen that wants to see your manager. And I mean, go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I totally, I totally saw this you know, that behavior coming from the Democrats only because, you know, you go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even, and they were, they, you know, the Democrats in power were the limousine liberals. There were not, I mean, for well over a decade, there've been very few Democrats that were your, you know, working class candidate in the Senate or in Congress. Um, They were limousine liberals. And also, you know, the Democrats, uh, you know, in Hollywood and everything else, they were all super, you know, they were the, they were the party of the super wealthy starting, you know, I I may be wrong about this, but, you know, at least in the early 2000s on, they, they were, they be, they were becoming quickly and they became the party of the super wealthy. You know, it wasn't, you know, there weren't a lot of the majority of people who were becoming wealthy over the past 20 years, were Democrats. The old money were still mm, some Democrats, but also a good portion Republicans. But the new money that was being created in the past 20 years, they were liberal. They were Democrats. They And the Democratic Party was very quietly um, pushing different agendas that were that were good for millionaires, that were good for billionaires, that were good for different industries, while railing against them, you know, from the other side of their mouth, but those, those in power and those in the know knew that that was okay. They're, they're appealing to their base for votes. But at the end of the day, when it comes to all of these different tax incentives and different economic um, uh, machinery that they're going to pull through legislation that the general public wasn't looking at, they, or even if they read it, they had no, they had no friggin' clue what it did or what the effect was. Um, and they were just like, oh, well, yeah, they voted on that. Uh, and so right. it, it, that didn't surprise me. Now, 
Uh, so yeah, I never, you know, I always, I always looked at the Democrats, you know, as I entered adulthood like that, because that was just, it was very clearly what they were becoming. And the, everybody's like, oh, who, who would have seen the Republicans as the working man's party? That's been a slow shift that's been happening. It may be more, more grossly apparent now, but that had been going on. That had been happening because, you know, people don't want to, people really don't want to talk about it, but your lower middle class working man in the flyover states, they are Christian. They are, or you know, or whatever religion you want to be, uh, they are relatively conservative in their values. And they weren't, you know, that 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 shift happened, you know, as the Democrats became more radical with their social policy. And even the working man unionized Democrats in the flyover states started looking at that going, okay, that's the issue that they're going, they're frothing at the mouth about, but what do I give a shit about that? That's not the issue I care about. I care about my paycheck. Uh, You know, I I care about the power of the union and stuff like that. And they kind of left them behind. That became a very, very secondary thing. And it only became a thing to them uh, in the lens of, um, uh, of, uh, what is called, uh, uh, intersectional politics. You know, it's the unions because of the poor person of color being the majority in that union or this or that. And again, the flyover state guys, just like, that's not, that's not what it is. What about me? They left them behind. That's how they lost them. You're right. Um, so where do you see this moving forward? Like, so we're moving into, it's interesting because here locally, like, and I'm just talking like in my county, over the course of the last two or three months is really when, like, I guess the Delta variant or like the another version of COVID or whatever has really picked up here locally. And we're now on the backside of that. So it almost feels as if, because if you look, we're in year two now, if you look over the course of the last two years, the same exact thing happened last year at the same exact time. So it almost feels like we have a summer flu now. Um, And I am cautious to say that I'm not trying to compare and say that COVID and the flu are the exact same thing. That's not what I'm saying, but I don't want people to fucking freak out on me. But that's what it feels like, that it has become endemic because that's what viruses do, right? They don't want to die. They don't want their hosts to die. They want to continue to replicate and and survive, right? They want to infect as many people as possible. So um, what do you see? Do you see this ramping up? Do you see them tapering off and saying, okay, well, maybe we were being a little overzealous. Do you see some legislation coming out to restrict the executive's authority in this regard? What what do you see medically moving forward? It's, I see a sort of fork in the road and there's two distinct paths that we can be going down and I'm not sure which one we're going to wind up down. Um, the medical community is compromised and you know uh, i'll be the first one to say it um last year when the medical communities uh various organizations came out and said 
all right, lock everybody down. This virus is going to kill you. Everybody stay inside. It was like, all right, that's, uh, that's an expected response. Then a few months later, they said racism is a uh, public health problem. Uh, so go out there and protest because it's a public health problem. It, it, so because it's a problem, we can justify your risk. And we don't really think these protests uh, are real super spreader events. But that, that rally, that Trump rally, that's a super spreader event. The minute they did that, I said, okay. <laughs> that is that's proof positive right there that now those who are in charge of the medical establishment are are politicized. They are Man. they're bought into the pure politics of it, and they've cho- and they've chosen a side, and they're not actually science or data driven. Um, because any doctor or scientist with any ounce of sanity left would have looked at the rallies, the protests, the burning down of cities and said, uh, they're really close together. They are amassed in enormous groups that are pressed against each other. Um, even though it's outdoors, this is probably not good. And I can't justify saying that's a problem, but outdoor church uh you know is like that's not a problem but outdoor church is a problem can't do that uh political rally for the opposite person not you know that's a problem too but this this is okay this this will be fine um that's it so as soon as that happened i was like that's it no we're sold out we're done okay and we've lost the trust of the public so once that so once that occurs now when you want to talk about where we're going medically those are the people in charge. They're the ones who are releasing the guidelines and, you know, the physicians below them, you know, my, my, uh, my field is a notoriously liberal one. Um, now it used to be, used to be, you couldn't tell what political affiliation your, your physician had because it just wasn't something that was discussed. And, and we kept ourselves out of that arena purposely because we were, we were supposed to be, a political. It didn't matter who you were, what you were, what you did, what you believed. I'm going to take care of you. And that's all you got to know. Um, we lost that. We lost public trust. Um, we lost our credibility, in my opinion. So with that in mind, and with people that are minded in that fashion in charge, um, you know, they could very easily lead us down the road, road one, I'll call it, which is continuing to utilize this as a way of having power and control and saying, we're going to need lockdowns for this. We're going to need lockdowns for that. Uh, Here's booster three. Here's booster five. Here's booster 20. Um, We came out with a pill. Take it every day. Uh, If you don't take it, you're a selfish bastard who doesn't love your neighbor and your children. Um, And so on. And this can continue until there's a breaking point. Um, hmm. a breaking point within the physician community or a breaking point within society. I'm curious as to what your thought process is there, because I like, for me, I would love to start seeing more physicians stand up and be like, look, I've advised this client based off our patient. I should say not client, but I've advised this patient based off of his medical history, not to get this. And I'm okay with that. He's okay with it. 
and fuck the government. Like it's, but you have the government threatening medical licenses for prescribing certain medications. It's the, I, I don't know. It's just the intermingling is scary to me. Like I, I am having a really hard time with not just this, but I, and and I've already had you for an hour and 12 minutes, so I don't want to keep you too long because I know no, you don't I get mean, many days I, off. I've, but. I've, well, well, no, I've had I've had past few, and I've, I cleared the morning for this, so I can keep going. Um, okay. Um, I, I want to also get into like the like the ethics of the the medical world, and and where that stands right now because it you know we we funded this virus right like we we put taxpayer dollars into a chinese institution that created the virus that is now tearing our country apart like we we literally did this to ourselves and where's that line right like we are now doing and i talked about this last night which you were over in pickles space so i'm not going to get too mad about that but um, well, it's because I was driving and I was contributing very little. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, we were um, talking about this whole um, the chimera of the um, pig and um, uh, human cells, where it's it's an actual chimera and it lived for four weeks. We're starting to combine DNAs to create organs to put into other body. Like it's just. Like the amount of trust and then you have big pharma, right? Like you're removing liability. I feel like that trust that you're talking about that has diminished and is waning, it's only getting worse as as things continue to move forward. And so when does the medical community start speaking up against that? Does that make sense? It does. Um, give me one second and I'm going to answer that. I just hear, I think a knock at the door. Give me one second. Okay, take your time. Okay, that noise was uh, my new kitchen table being delivered and now being assembled, which I'm very happy about. Anyway, um, so the breaking point. Um, I don't think the medical community will have a breaking point um, unless there's a societal breaking point. Cause, and I, I don't like to generalize. And there are a lot of physicians out there who have spoken up, who have taken a stand. Um, some more so than me, um, way more than me. Like I, you know, I, I'm an, so I'm an idiot who just like to, who likes to spout profanity anonymously on Twitter. Um, and (laughs) I have, (laughs) right. Um, and I've spoken my piece and I have done my own forms of resisting, um, in my workplace and got ostracized for it, but I didn't, I didn't take it to an extreme and I I didn't get fired. I didn't, I didn't really need to. Um, but there are those who have, um, so I don't mean to belittle them because there are some, but I will say the majority 50% or over of physicians in the medical community, um, either buy into this lockstep um, cause it's their politics and, and they bought, and they just bought it. They bought the company line. They, they drank the Kool-Aid and they are just rabid and there's no coming back. Um, right. and the other 
the other reason being that a lot of them, even if they were to shake the cobwebs out and suddenly kind of come to a realization of, oh shit, are we the bad guys? Um, they're, and I know there's going to be a lot of people get upset about this, but there's a lot, a lot of positions are spineless. Um, you know, Say that they, one more time. There was some background noise that cut you off. Um, a lot of physicians are spineless. Okay, gotcha. They, you know, they've got their practice. They've got their decent paycheck. They have their comfortable lifestyle. Um, and, you know, we, a lot of doctors, again, not all, but there's a lot of them out there who, they went to college, went straight to medical school. They didn't have to work. They came from well-off families. Um, and they didn't know what strife was and they didn't know, they didn't know what pain was and they've never been in a fight. They've, you know, they've cowered for a lot of their life. And so when, you know, when it's time to sack up, they go, eh, no thanks. So I don't, unfortunately, and this is my personal experience. This is anecdotal. This, there's no, there's no good study showing, uh, yeah, you know, most physicians, female and male, uh, <laughs> lack intestinal fortitude. Fine, Sorry. But, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, so I don't see that community hitting their own breaking point. And if they were going to, like there were, there were huge physician groups coming out and going, this is wrong and here's data against this blah 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 and they just got suppressed and they were gone they were wiped off the face of the earth and you just you sure. nobody knew who they were they were called or they were called crazies um it's it's a societal breaking point when that occurs and i think that you know if you start going down path one you will reach a breaking point for society there's only so much that you know there's only so much economic loss there's only so much lying our politicians can do to our face while things are falling apart um, there's only so much you can lose before you get to a point where you are about to lose everything, where you are, um, just, you used to, you used to do well and it was on your own back and you made, you created your own destiny for you and your family and we're, we're losing the ability to do that. And when that's completely robbed from you in mass, at some point there, there, there comes a breaking point where people go, nope. That's it. You know what? What am I? What have I got to lose by doing X, Y, or Z? When that occurs, then then you may see a shift. Now the other now path two is come the midterms. um, A lot of populist congressmen and women and senators get voted in, and they take control of the House and maybe even the Senate if we're lucky. Now, do I trust Republicans? Do I like Republicans? Not especially. However. They are they they woken up and they smell the coffee and they realize what their voter base is and what they want and they, and populism has taken a stronghold and they want to get and if they get elected they want to get reelected so they will start to curb some of these um, executive branch overreaches and you'll see a war within government and Biden Biden will lose if you know if. Congress and even if it's just the Congress, Congress can lock everything up. But if it's Congress and the Senate, that's it. That is game over. This becomes not just a lame duck administration, but then we start legislating our way out of this. Um, 
and then you know the econ- the long term economic ramifications. That'll be we'll see what happens. But you know, I, I unfortunately foresee some very difficult economic times based on the policies that are being enacted currently, and that may that may be enacted depending on what they do with this reconciliation bill and um, the Build Back Better plan and so on. Um, you know, because we were we we're just you know money money machine go brr like. Right. Hold up, guys. Just time out. That's not exactly how it works. Shut up. No, it does. Brrr. Whoa, whoa. Oh, God. Oh, God. What have you done? Um, right. And and the supply chain and everything else. And there's, you know, and our energy independence, which needs to be reestablished. So if we can win the midterms, we go down path two and things get better. And, and then things get better. And people go, well, things got better when we, when we asked, when we asked the people who were supposedly Satan uh, to, to take over those offices, you know what, maybe we should reelect somebody who is not that guy who I think maybe um, may have full on dementia at this point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We may have to do that. I mean, the independents, like largely in the polls right now, the independents are completely done with this president they're disgusted with the whole administration there's like what the independents are like what have we done and that's the vote you're worried about sure so i want to go back and touch on something that you had mentioned you said something about the supply chain and i want to specifically tie that to medicine so um there was a thing that i saw the other day and hang on i'm pulling it up while i talk to you um the um Amount of our medicine that is uh, manufactured in China is <laughs> mind-boggling. <laughs> right, it's it, it's massive, and yep. I'm curious if you think that there is a, an opportunity. Like, why? Why did we put ourselves in a position where our health is dependent on another country? And we saw them utilize that against us in this pandemic, right? We didn't see China economically hurt because that's where we got our masks, our prophylactics, our, you know, like, and and that's, you know, like you sit here and you look at it and you really don't want to put like fucking aluminum foil on your, on your head, but that's what you start feeling like when you're like, was this all orchestrated? Was this all done intentionally? Did you create this virus in a lab? release it intentionally to boost, to shut down small businesses and do the transfer of wealth that you wanted to so that this build back better globalist agenda could actually occur. Like it was this all done intentionally. So, and that's, I just kind of ranted there for a second, but going back to the supply chain, is there a way that you see for us to bring that manufacturing back to the United States? Is there a way, or not just the U.S., but, I mean, we have a U.S. US CMA, like the the Mexican and American and Canadian um, trade agreement. Like, we could probably manufacture medication fairly inexpensively in, in Mexico. And then we're cutting China out of that. Like, what, what do you see there? Like, do you see that as an opportunity for us? So, so before we continue, I'm just going to let you know, it was happening a few times very briefly before, but for that entire chain of what you said, you had the, um, I can understand most of it, but you had the robot voice. So I don't know if there's something you want to, um, oh, you want to change. And I, and okay. maybe it's just on my side. 
Maybe I'll go. I mean, if it's shitty, I'll just go and edit it out. But did you understand what I was asking? I I could I I could tell, and it's happening a little bit again right now. But um, I could tell what you were asking, and uh, you know the. So, you know, I tell people a lot that doctors are really smart when it comes to medicine, but not many doctors are smart when it comes to um, economics and finances. Um, or a lot of other things because we just hyper-focus. Uh, that being said, though, you know, from a more very 10,000-foot um, uh, view perspective, you know, do I think do I think this was released purposely? No. Um, but do I think China took advantage of the situation? Absolutely they did. And, you know, as we get closer to a showdown – um, over Taiwan with them. And if that, and if any type of change in our stance with them occurs for the negative, they can, they can, they can cripple this country's medical infrastructure easily. And why do we let ourselves get into this position? Money. So it always comes down to money. China can produce things cheaply because they, they just utilize slave labor. I mean, just that's what, that's what communism is great for. Um, and even now they, you know, recently they just said that they were, I read an article where they were talking about, they were obliterating a lot of their cap, their quasi capitalist policies and going back to hardline communism um, politically and economically. And it's just kind of occurred over the past few months. Um, so they can produce this, they can produce all of that super cheaply. Now, can you bring that back and produce it in Mexico, produce it here? You can. Now, the drug industry and the insurance industry is one of the most convoluted and complex. I, I put it up there with the tax code. Like you need you need like a eight, eight year set of degrees just to be able to to figure it out from start to finish and. Um, <laughs> And every facet and variable that goes into it, at least from my perspective, it's it's a really difficult thing. Um, could we do that and keep our prices down? That's the variable that I, I don't know. Um, but at some point, we're going to have to figure it out because I really do believe at some point, something's going to happen and they're going to say, you know what? Fuck you. And either stop all of it or just start saying, Hey, we're having a shortage here. This sorry right. on certain critical things, you know? So, and then, no, no, then, and that's, this is the way the federal government and all these industries work. They only try to figure out a solution when there's a crisis. They don't try to figure it out when they can see the crisis coming around the corner, but it's going to cost them money to avert it. Um, right. And so it's, it will be a problem at some point. Um, and only then will we figure that will we figure out our way through it. Uh, until then I firmly expect we'll continue getting medical supplies, medications, et cetera, that are wholesale produced there and bought for cheap on the bulk. Um, it's it's just not an issue that enough people are pushing. It's not an issue that enough people are screaming at the top of their lungs about for anybody in power with the ability to control or change that to give a shit about. Well, I mean, at this point, 
I don't know that regardless of how loud you screamed that anybody would listen to you. Probably not. Um, but at least the point being, you know, even if, at least if you have that, you have some kind of push for it. Um, and then the danger of later having to say, well, they told us so we don't even have that now to at least push somebody to make even small changes that could incrementally build up. It's just, nobody cares. Everybody's head is in the sand and bigger fish to fry. So it's just, I had this conversation on another episode a couple nights ago. Um, Comfort, right? Everybody's incredibly comfortable right now. And until people really hurt, until you can't get that life-saving medication that you need, until you can't get, you know, you know, whatever it is, until you hurt, you're not, you're not going to see any of that. You're not going to see people push back at all. Well, I mean, that was, that was part of the point I made that one night and then I had a duck out where it's, you know, is it the, when it comes to the, not the politicians, but the everyday people who are on the other side who are rabid, the ones you see in the stores with the mat, you know, screaming about the masks and blah, 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 which one is the stronger, um, lure to them? And is it the, um, the desire for safety and comfort or is it the, uh, enjoyment of having power and, and being an authoritarian, um, and kind of that the mixture of the two and which one plays a larger role. And that's, that, that is part of the same argument. People will, people don't want to solve problems that aren't problems to them until they are problems. Nobody, nobody has foresight anymore. Nobody looks 20 miles down the road and see the tree that's, you know, down, you know, somebody told them in town, Hey, there's a tree down, down the road. And rather than doing the smart thing and looking for a different road, they just keep going down and going, eh, maybe it got cleared. And then they get there and they go, well, shit, what do I do now? <laughs> um, and, and it, you know, when you put it in that, when you put it in those terms, people go, wow, that's really stupid, but that's, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> right. You know, do you see the check engine light on? Nobody goes to the mechanic. They wait until the car, the engine's smoking. <laughs> I feel seen, <laughs> but, but it, Hey, it's still running. So right. whatever, I don't want to spend $200 now, but you're going to have to spend $2,000 later. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what this is. That's so true. God, that's a great analogy. Ah, okay. Now, now you're, now you're roboting hard. Okay. Well, you sound fine to me on my end. So I guess we'll go ahead and tell everybody where they can follow you. So my Twitter handle is at Ben Franklin MD one. You can follow me there on Twitter. Um, I have hot takes. I post memes and stupid shit, semi lucid political opinions. Uh, oh, looks like she's can back. Can you hear me? Okay. It's probably registering on my end, just not yours. If you're talking, I don't hear you at all. Yeah, I'm totally talking. And I don't know why it's not picking up. So I will go ahead and end it here. I'm going to have to edit the shit out of the end of this, but I love you, Ben, for coming on. Thank you so much. You take I care. See the lines <laughs> on her, like, on her equalizer. <laughs> I hate the internet. It sucks so bad. Anyway. Okay, everybody. I love you. You guys take care. Ben, thank you for coming on. 
Take care and have a good day. Um, this was great. And uh, we can totally, I would love to do it again and we can get into <laughs> Uh, other things. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!